Welcome to the Superstruct Show, the podcast for founders who depend on devs to get things done. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Jad Mucci. Jad, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Jad. I'm the technical co-founder of BadVR. We're a Los Angeles-based startup doing data visualization in virtual reality. So we find interesting and creative ways of stepping inside of data, exploring it, interacting with it, kind of like in something out of a sci-fi movie. Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've done uh, some of the demos, probably not in a, a little while, but they are really impressive. Um, so uh, you definitely rely on developers, I think, to build out your VR software. Um, what else, I mean, what else do you really depend on devs to, to build for you? Well, I think it's, it's not just the virtual reality software, but the infrastructure driving it also. So the collaboration server and microservices, some of the data processing, some of the integrations, um, it's just a variety of things, uh, that requires a diverse skill set that doesn't always span a single developer, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of just the amount of languages and applications it's not all in one person's head so we have to really build a team out of it and almost like different special teams to tackle different problems do you feel that some companies have an advantage and that they can get developers where everything fits into one dev's head or is that just not realistic i think that definitely other people have a bit of an advantage on this with regard to like full stack developers for example Mm -hmm. uh, you you really can get a little bit of front end and back end that can cover maybe all aspects of a web application. Mm -hmm. Now maybe you need a little bit of database thrown in there, but I would say that if you're building, let's say, a iPhone app or if you're building a web app, you can really get a developer who can do the vast majority of it. With stuff like virtual reality that's driven by by web services or an enterprise back end, it starts to become a little bit more complicated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how did you approach finding uh, engineers? Well, that was uh, that was an adventure. So <laughs> we initially, and we're based on the Unity sort of uh, development environment, and we didn't have a lot of experience with Unity. Mm. So we were coming into it not really having done effectively game programming. And so we had to learn game programming, then learn how to find game programmers, then learn how to train game programmers to become applications programmers. So this was sort of the adventure that we took is we we found talent of one type and then built them up into having a more varied skill set. So we did a lot of, I would say, training on the job training. Wow, that's really interesting. And I, and I, I think that actually probably is closer to the experience that um, a lot of less technical founders might have, right? Where they, they are less familiar with the technology that they're hiring for. Um, did you, did you learn anything or is there any kind of, I guess, approach that worked well for, for getting that to work? Yeah, we learned that we needed people who had foundational backgrounds in programming as opposed to extensive experience with, let's say, game development or the, or the graphical or design side of it. And we found that even people with less sort of Unity experience, but more programming experience were a better fit 
at least for the problems that we're solving. So it was, it, it took us a while to build that profile mm-hmm. of sort of the perfect developer for us. And then having somebody have the ability to learn as well so that they can receive the teaching that we can give along the way, teaching our practices and standards. So there were, there are a couple different aspects of sort of that perfect persona of an ideal developer for us. That's really interesting. The, the, the concept of, I guess, teachability or coachability is, is, so is that part of the profile that you, you look for, or is that something that just kind of comes along with that more broad based foundational versus like specialist? Yeah, it, it's definitely something we look for, but we do find it in that type of background. So mm-hmm. usually somebody who has been coding for a while understands that they have to adapt that skill set over time, that you can't, let's say, learn PHP and then use it for 20 years. It's going to be perhaps less common in a few years and you have to pivot to learn something else. Mm-hmm. So that's been, I would say, a tenet of programming in general that we see in a lot of people coming from a programming background is that concept of continuous education or self-learning or really, quite frankly, the ability to Google something (laughs) answer, get it on Stack Overflow, whatever. And and that curiosity, that's an aspect that we look for and and find. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I just saw a, um, I I just saw a paper that was looking at um, ability and, and how much motivation factored in even more so than, than intelligence. And I think that is related to that curiosity, that, that self-motivation to, to get to the answer, um, that people need. So once the, once they're in the door, like, what does that, what does that training, what does that teaching, what does that coaching look like? How do you make sure that they're building what your company actually needs built? I'd say there's a lot of teaching by example, a -hmm. lot of, you know, leadership in that way where we're showing them, hey, here's how we solved the problem in the past. And here's how we, first of all, identified the problem and then created a specification for a solution and then fumbled our way towards that solution, failing 20 times along the way. (laughs) Here's what we learned at the end of how you can, the next time that you're approaching this, um, you know, not fall into the same pitfalls. So we we really try to teach a lot of our process Mm -hmm. of how we got from concept to execution and not necessarily just, well, here's how to write a high performance shader, but here's how a shader would work normally. And then here's how a shader works once it's been tailored for this high volume or high performance environment. So trying to show the contrast between almost like a before and after. So, so I think one of the things that, 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 brings to my mind is it it seems like because the the you have those extremes that you're looking for in my mind it just seems like you would want that specialist who had done it before but like because because of what you're talking about that just seems very specialized but that is the opposite of what you were um you know saying saying worked so i find that i find that pretty pretty interesting like I guess I, I want to know a little bit more. Like, wh- why do you think that works better to to get the generalist and to instead of relying on having somebody else who's an expert at this stuff like bring it to you? 
I think we would love to have an expert. There are constraints, budgetary, and also just it's hard to find somebody who has experience in data visualization and virtual reality. Mm-hmm. That it, It's not a thing, or at least it wasn't a thing when we started. So there was nobody. There were no standards. There were no practices. There were no uh, educational material. There were no tutorials. It was maybe the best thing that we found is, hey, here's how to make a pie chart in Unity from 10 years ago you know, with code that doesn't compile anymore. And so I think for us, the, the innovation in the product and the innovation in the product strategy is what necessitated us innovating in how we develop the talent or find the talent. Perhaps now it could be easier to find. And we are now lately finding people that have more relevant experience as the market has grown. But I can tell you that along the path, it was basically impossible to find anybody with the background that we wanted. That is fascinating. And I think it makes a lot more sense that as you're like the less common your business. So the idea that if you are building a business to take advantage of some space or some combination of spaces that isn't common, it you're probably not going to be able to find an expert that fits is that what do you think that's fair to say i think that's fair to say like let's say that you're looking for somebody who can do uh, uh web services on a quantum computer because that's what you want your business to be good luck finding anybody <laughs> that's even a thing now it doesn't even exist yeah. so you kind of have to build that you have to build that market build that understanding and then build that talent profile and that's what we we've had to do and you know it's worked in many ways it's 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 obviously we've grown to the size that we have. We're comfortable. Um, but uh, I would love to be able to just hire somebody. That mm-hmm. would be amazing. Yeah. And, and in my mind, I'm just, um, it, it almost seems like you would have had the choice to either hire a data visualization, quote unquote, expert or a Unity game dev expert, uh, maybe both, and then try and get them to work together and work towards that combination but um, maybe it just kind of makes, yeah, it seems like in your case, it made a lot more sense to get somebody a little bit more general and more malleable and then work them up to that to that intersection, which is pretty cool. We learned it the hard way. So we <laughs> didn't start by doing that. We started mm-hmm. by bringing in people who were, let's say, specialized in certain types of game development or, or certain types of, let's say, architectural VR development. Mm-hmm. But we found that it was not the most transferable skill set. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of experience in one direction with the specialization. But then when we gave a little bit of a curveball, you know, hey, we want to do it. But instead of rendering a large building, we want to render a large terrain. Oh, well, I don't know the terrain system. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, but is that knowledge of rendering these massive complexes and floors and conduits, is that transferable? Well, we're using this system and that system, it's not really doesn't work on outdoor terrain. And it just that we kind of got ourselves into a corner with that. Mm-hmm. And we had to teach ourselves out of it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So what is, um, I guess, yeah, what does what does management look like? Like, how at what point do you realize that it's not working? How do you? How do you decide when it's time to look for for new talent or or how does that all look on the inside? We're a pretty heavy-duty meritocracy. 
So it's, it's really about, at the end of the day, deliverables. And I think when people start having difficulty with deliverables or having difficulty understanding what the deliverable should be, that's when we realize that we need to engage with it in a little bit more meaningful capacity to have a deeper conversation and maybe make an adjustment. So I think that that's, that's the quantitative measurement is, hey, we need to build a component that can handle this volume of, I don't know, Excel tables and convert them into this beautiful uh, tree looking object that runs at 100 frames per second on a, a battery powered headset. And when they are unable to even approach it or break it down into smaller pieces, that's when we realize that, okay, this is probably not the right talent for that mm-hmm. particular task. And then we go shopping around uh, uh, the, the company in, in a manner of speaking to find out, okay, who, who can we trade this task to? Who's fitted for this and suited for this? And if we come up dry, then we know, all right, maybe we have a bigger issue. Mm, that's really interesting. The, the the shopping metaphor. It's it's like you've got these constraints, or you've got this checklist that you're trying to to do, and that that kind of becomes the the metric. Is that folded into like any kind of process or methodology, like Agile or Kanban, or do you like any of those? We definitely do Agile, and we do a lot of lean startup methodology, which maybe isn't as formal of a process, but it's a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really about understanding what the customer wants and speaking to the customer very early on, long before there's even a product, mm-hmm. understanding what what makes them happy, what they really need. They may say that they want these 50 things, and then we say, okay, well, which one would you pay for? Well, this one is the one <laughs> I would pay for. Well, that's the requirement then. Yeah. And so I think once we understand our target and our goal, then we attempt to break it down into smaller pieces or smaller cycles so that we can say, okay, well, how can we do half the work to get half the deliverable? How can we do a quarter of the work to get a quarter of the deliverable? What's the smallest unit that we can subdivide this into and then hand it off to whichever uh, talent is the most suited for it so that they can have a quick, easy win and then move the ball forward. So mm-hmm. I think it's all about small steps in the right direction at continuously course correcting to make sure that we're pointed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So whatever that process is, that's, that's <laughs> one we follow. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think I, I'm definitely on board with the, the, the momentum and the continuous deliverability. I think that is, is always, uh, really important. How much do you, how much do you rely on the developers to be part of that process of determining what, um, like what the customer wants or what really should be built? Or is that something that is really kind of outside the development team and then, um, is sort of brought to them? I think that the, the the makeup of our team being very product heavy and developer heavy, and for example, when we go to conferences and trade shows and even demos to customers, simply because of our staffing or our small number of people, we have to bring developers. Mm. So that essentially brings developers into the process, even to the requirements gathering process, into the QA and testing process, into deployment. So, And that's been very valuable for us. I think when you look at being a, I'd say a well-balanced developer, 
having an awareness that once you hand in that code, somebody is then going to pay to use that code to accomplish some goal. And if you can watch them as they're doing it, number one, it's very satisfying to see it being used, mm -hmm. being used properly and being used effectively. So we find that people really enjoy interacting with the customers because the customers are usually happy. So I think maybe if the customers were unhappy, maybe that wouldn't be such a pleasant experience, but we're very focused on understanding and listening. And that's why we engage in dialogue and have everybody engage in dialogue and have engineers attend calls. So I'd say that that's, we pull a little bit of the time away from engineering to distribute it around to almost more product centric tasks and possibly even you could consider some of them marketing because we think it's really important to have the developers involved and aware of what's going on sort of at all levels of the business. Mm -hmm. I mean, have there been times where you've encountered difficulties in defining those clear product requirements or, or just not being on the same page with the, the developers, even though they, they have been on those calls and have been around customers? Oh, definitely. So we have, let's say we attend an event uh, conference or whatever. We talk to a hundred customers or a hundred potential customers. And of course, what they say and what everybody hears is the point of, of contention. Mm -hmm. it, maybe three developers say, well, they said they wanted to be able to change the color. And, and what somebody else heard is no, no, no. They just wanted to be able to, um, to change between two colors or have an alternate color scheme or something like that, a light and a dark. Well, no, we should build a system that allows any color scheme to happen. <laughs> yeah, but that's a little bit complicated. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a quick win here that mm -hmm. just involves swapping out a, a style sheet, if you will. So I think that that's reconciling the differences in the reception of that communication. That's something that we operationalize when we do group activities or group conferences or demos is at the end of the day, we'll consolidate all of our information and thoughts into one place and have a very open conversation about, hey, what did you hear? What did they say and what did you hear? Because it's not always the same thing and you can't necessarily hear it literally. Hmm. You have to try to probe and dig deeper. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. It, I mean, it also just kind of reminds me of of a few things. One, one of my favorite books is The Mom Test, which is uh, a book about customer development and really having conversations with customers in a way that that is able to reveal what they want in a product and what they will pay for but doing it in a way where where those you know what they're saying and what you're hearing doesn't get all all mixed up and um part of me thinks that if you really are going to encourage uh or or treat developers as part of that product experience. I mean, I can definitely see that being um, valuable. And then um, the other thing that, that I have on my mind is that, um, like, wh what are these, how are you putting these in the same place? Like, is there a particular tool or do you have like your own framework for, for running this? Like, what exactly does that look like? For managing these communications and conversations, you mm -hmm, mean? Mm-hmm. We don't really have a formal tool other than I would say there are a couple online wiki type sites where we will put information and notes and ideas and imagery and sketches. So we, we collect these informal requirements into more of a raw notes area mm -hmm. that structured 
kind of like a wiki. Mm -hmm. And then the product person will go back in after the fact uh, afterwards and then really try to synthesize from that and and boil it down to a, a more fundamental requirement or vision. Mm -hmm. So that, there, no, there isn't a great tool that we have, I would say. We, we would be seeking a tool like that for mm -hmm. sure. Interesting. But I mean, it sounds like there is value to that freeform-ness, like that you're just trying to, to, I guess, yeah, you're just trying to collect it somewhere, but you think that there would be value in, in having it be a little bit more, I don't know, rigid or something? I think at the end of the day, it's a communication challenge. So yeah. anything that facilitates faster or better communication, and for us, we're very visual people. So we, we like to use a lot of sketches, a lot of screenshots, a lot of uh, drawings, even 3D drawings and, and immersive drawings. So I think having a tool that, I don't know, that could bring that all together, I guess maybe that's to some degree the tool that we're building for our customers <laughs> is a way to gather that knowledge and, and thoughts. Uh, so maybe maybe oh, one thing we use our own tool. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and then, and then you said, so you have a dedicated product person who then is responsible for taking that, distilling it, and then giving that back to the, the dev team. Exactly. That's right. Mm -hmm. So they put together a product requirements document and in many cases, a user manual, uh, prior to us really doing the engineering. Oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, yeah. The user manual part I think is, is interesting to me, but first I'm going to ask about the, the product requirements doc. I mean, is there some sort of minimum level or or how do you how do you view that i mean if you if you think that the the product person did a great job like creating that prd for the the devs like what what does that look like what like what do you expect number one i expect it to be short so the now maybe i'm speaking for myself more than others but i i maybe i'm not going to read a 20 page document with the same level of engagement that uh, I'll read a, a three-page document. So for mm -hmm. me, that it really does need to be short and to the point and have maybe a, a visual or some type of structure to it. It doesn't have to be written from the perspective of an engineer. In fact, I'd prefer that it be non-technical. Mm -hmm. I like to see a mention of UX user personas in that as well. Mm -hmm. So who is the audience for this, for this product, I should say, and then the document, our perspective is the audience for that document is that user. So that if a user were to read the PRD, that they would understand it. And then when we translate that into work tasks, that's where that English to code uh, description gets or translation gets made. It, we find that the PRD is, is almost on the level of a more detailed user manual. Mm -hmm. And that's why sometimes we will accept a user manual as a PRD if it's got enough detail to it, but the PRD, we want it to be really, really concise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then the, is the developer taking the PRD directly or is there like a intermediate step? I mean, I assume they always have access to the PRD, but is there, is there an intermediate step before, before they start working? They definitely have access to it. The intermediate step is usually a review. So we will walk through it as a group and really grill it and then see if people have questions and then also probe to see are, are they, what do they see in their mind when they read through this? 
what is their understanding of what the end result looks like and then they are, do their best to sort of say it back to describe it and then other people will say oh that's not what i thought it was and that we found solves so many problems before they happen where we as a group come to an understanding an agreement of what it is that this says and if there's a lot of discrepancy between how people are interpreting it we need to make revisions to the prd so it should be unambiguous as to what it's uh, yielding, but it should also be very, very short in, in really the shortest expression of how to yield that product output. Oh, that is so good. I, I love that. I, I don't think a lot of companies uh, do that, but I think that is so important. I mean, the, the, the idea that two people, like even if you have a document, you know, sitting in between you, the idea that two people are going to have the same thing in their head, um, it, it's it's just not something that you can bank on. And so being able to to play that game of telephone to or have that checksum to make sure that that everybody is in alignment, I think is is really smart. So so you did you not do that in the beginning, or like when did you when did you learn to to kind of build that into your process? No, we did not do that in the beginning. In the beginning, I'd say we were operating with a much more textbook approach where we would build out a, a set of, we'd have some conversation with customers, build out a set of requirements, and then start building everything from a really technical language, almost explaining to a developer, hey, build this component, then build that component. Hmm. And what we found is that the end result of it, by the time it would be implemented and we would see it for the first time, again, they're building highly visual things. So when we finally visualize it, we look at it and we say, you know, it's not quite what we had in mind. I don't know if that's exactly what the customer had in mind. And then we have to take, go back to the customer, show it to them. And sort of this process, it's, it elongated the development cycle. And really what we needed, so we started doing more design process mm -hmm. before that, where we would, okay, well, instead of having an engineer build from product spec, let's have a designer sketch it up first, which mm -hmm. probably is how you're supposed to do it. So we make mock-ups, we review the mock-ups, but then... We had a lot of issues where a design person has to think in three dimensions for the kinds of problems that we're solving. You can't look at, mm. you can't draw it on a screen of what a room is, it feels like to be in, for example, mm. a, a virtual room. So we found that we had to do three dimensional sketches. And then we realized that the designers are doing three dimensional sketches. The customers are coming in and stepping into it. And at this point, we might as well just have the engineers tag along. And then we found that the engineers were so elevated in productivity by participating in that, hmm. that quite frankly, we realized, well, I'm not even sure we need the design people involved. <laughs> we have the, the customers and the engineers talking directly using an immersive you know, 3D drawing app as their medium of communication. Oh, wow. That's sort of like a weird full circle. Oh, there. I know. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, I was almost like wondering, like, what are the analogs? Like, is it like storyboard people like more in like movies? I mean, cause like in theory, movies have scenes that are 3d and positions and, and space. And I bet there are designers that, that are used to that, but I bet it's a, yeah, a different designer than people trying to do flat, you know, web apps or something like that. Um, 
So, but how, yeah. So like once it's back to the, to the developers though, like, aren't you losing something with the designers or like, there's just enough, there's just enough in the conversation with the, the customer. There's a lot in the conversation with the customer that they can extract value from, but, but also we're using a lot of comparisons and comps and visual imagery. So incorporating a lot of, let's say, screenshots from sci-fi movies as, hey, mm-hmm. here's a visual reference of cool glowing lines connecting to dots. And this mm-hmm. is something that, that because these movies are made for a consumer audience, they're very usually very easy to understand what you're looking at. They're not necessarily good products. Usually they're not good products, but right. it's a good visual reference. And so then you, we sort of have a, an engineer take their own spin on it. And sometimes there's a product or, or somebody with a design background in it. We found that having coders that have a little bit of an art background, even if it's just for fun, helps dramatically. So <laughs> one of our coders said, uh, oh, yeah, I know how to sketch comic book type stuff. And, and we <laughs> said, okay, so take a shot at it. Sketch out you know, a 3D room with some of these elements in it. And he did it, and it was amazing. And so huh. then we had him doing all kinds of Im- imagination of different ideas and concepts. So I think that having a little bit of a, I don't know, multidisciplinary background can help. We have coders who really like music. And mm. I know that it's not a visual medium, it's an auditory medium, but thinking about space and how sounds bounce around is a spatial line of thinking. And so there are many, many parallels. We had a product person in the past who used to be an interior designer. And so that was super relevant for, hey, balance out this this virtual space so that it feels inviting and warming, but also feels endless, that there are no limitations. And giving really, really vague instructions like that to somebody and then having them actually able to produce something, uh, that was I don't know. It's so it's all kinds. It's almost like prompting an AI. You have to give the people interesting ways of using the the talent they already have and ways to think about it differently, where they really tap into their three dimensional thinking and their three dimensional mind and get away from the flat screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I I can't help but think that in a lot of ways, um, you are you're kind of doing the opposite of what I see work best. And I'm trying, I'm trying to think of like why that is. And, and, and the, the, the thing that I'm specifically talking about is, is you were relying pretty heavily on your developers for, I think, product and design and all of these sort of like non coding, non-building things. And I think in general, I caution, I caution founders against doing that. Like I, I, I think typically my advice is you should make sure that your product and you know, your, your product people, whether that's you or you hire them or whoever that team is, that they are able to really get that nailed and know what you are building before you give it to the developers. And I think what I'm finding so interesting in talking to you is, is how important it is for you that your developers are part of that product. They are, they are like product minded 
and even beyond that, they they seem to be. Uh, it I guess is important that they they do have that more artistic and design sense. So I guess my question to you is: Do you think that this this is something that you think would apply uh, to a lot of founders, or like where do you think the the line is? It really depends on the stage of the company, but maybe more so the stage of the product. We're closing in on product market fit. So we have a pretty clear vision of what this product is supposed to be. So at this point, we can really focus in on doing as much creativity as possible within very, very tight boundaries. Mm. So we're focusing our creativity in the direction of very, very I'd say specific guidelines and directives. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't apply at the beginning. I would say this is the evolution of our hiring or management philosophy also reflects the evolution of the product over time. As we were figuring out what the product is for a very long time, and then we figured it out. And now we're, we're okay, now we're sort of blocking out everything else and going full steam ahead towards that. So I think that it comes down to whether whether you know what your customers want or whether you know that what you're building is what your customers want. Once you know that, I think you can start to get really laser focused. For us, the moment of revelation was when we assembled this demonstration of a vision and we showed it to 10 different customers from 10 different industries and they all had the same perception of it and they all asked for the same thing. Mm sort of the same variation of it, we realized, wow, everybody across industries, across countries is aligned on what this product should be and how they would use it. I think we may have found fit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been really exciting for us when we hear the same requests over and over, independent of where we go and what we do, it feels like we've graduated to the next level of it. And I think that's where the design is probably less creative mm-hmm. or maybe more focused in creativity. And that's where we give a lot of latitude to the developers like, hey, as long as it satisfies this constraint, please be as creative as possible within that. And they come up with some really wacky stuff that the customers dig. So I think, I don't know, maybe we've just brought them up in that mentality, but I think that every developer has that innate ability to understand the product and develop towards it. And so we're just tapping into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The, the, I don't know, the idea that it's like, as you have a clearer idea of what you're going for, like, and you have those guardrails, like the more that more solid, those guardrails, like the more, I guess, beneficial or the more that you can, like give that freedom to the developers. Um, in, in, in my, I guess in my experience, I think the thing that I really have not uh, seen work well is when that you have a product person who almost kind of like abdicates their responsibility to the devs. And so you, it's like you don't get PRDs and you just get sort of these like really vague like features and they expect the the developers to just kind of figure it out. Right. And, and to some extent, I think a lot of people think that that's totally reasonable, right? Like if, if, if somebody from product says like, yeah, we just need a form uh, where a user can put in their name, their date of birth and, you know, 
like something else, like just go make it. Um, it, There's actually like a million different design decisions when it comes down to that. Like if that, if those are the only instructions and you're relying on the developer to, to like make it work, um, what they choose to do is very unlikely to be like what you had in, in your mind. This is almost going back to the, to the, the game of telephone thing where, where you really do want to make sure that, that, um, whoever's, you know, sort of defining the product, like hears back what, what they had in their, in their mind. Um, and I, I just think that's like a really dangerous thing to not have strong product with, with developers, um, and just relying on them to, to make those, all of those little, like any product has so many little decisions along the way that really add up to a very different outcome. And, um, I think when, when product people are lazy and just want developers to do that, um, or the other way that, that it can happen is almost specifically hiring for that. Like you are hiring a developer with like a very strong product background so that they can handle that. Like, like where the product person wants to like, yeah, we'll just, you know, get in the meeting and, and we'll just, you know, bounce some ideas back and forth so that I know it's possible. And then, you know, and then, you know, I'll come up with the PRD. Um, right. And yeah, it's, I, it's like, I want to know, I basically want to know when that is dangerous and when that is not dangerous. And so hearing, like hearing your, your perspective, I think is, is really interesting to me. And I don't know if it's because your product that you were building is so unlike other things in web apps and, and standard products, or if it is that it really does have a lot of creative latitude and you are trying to, to get lots of different ideas in it and see what works. And yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. Another component of it, I would say, is that when you look at the target demographic right now of, in our example, virtual reality experiences, mm-hmm. the developers are in that target demographic. Mm-hmm. So the developers are more likely to have played a lot of VR games. They're more likely to have tested out new AR headsets and tried all kinds of different things. They may have even started to, to build something on the side for fun. Mm-hmm. Whereas the product people are maybe less in that demographic, so they just don't have as much experience in it. So we find that that also helps with the empathy for the users is they the developers know what makes for a good VR game, what makes for a good interaction design. And the, the designers or the product people maybe have just less exposure, which can be beneficial in many ways. But I would agree with you that if you don't have really, really tight requirements, that the process is not going to move very well. And we, we learned that the hard way when we were at the beginning, almost wandering around aimlessly trying to figure it out. And with, with not, uh, we didn't even have somebody in a product role. We were all sort of floating around trying to understand what makes the customers what what do what do the customers even want? What are their pain points? Mm-hmm. We had this theory about it, but we didn't know how to test that theory. And so it took us a long time. And by the time we actually formalized the product process, I'd say that we had maybe three or four forks in the road that we could go down. And I mean, maybe it's luck that we chose the right one, 
but I think it's because we so rapidly measured and course corrected along the way that we were able to survive maybe jumping between two permutations of the product hmm. uh, or three permutations as opposed to going all in on what a single product person says. So quite frankly, I think it can be fatal if you have a bad product person mm -hmm. at one particular stage of the company, if you can't absorb that transition between product people, or if you don't have redundancy in the system to correct for it, that could lead you down the wrong path. And all of a sudden you realize that you've been building the same application that your 10 competitors have mm -hmm. and whoever has the most digital marketing spend wins. And mm -hmm. for us, it's been quite uh, quite the opposite, where our thing is so different from what other people are doing that sometimes it's hard to even compare it. But it also means that we stand out and then we're able to really be experimental in some of the things that we do. And there's just less, I don't know, less competition, uh, which is good in a new space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it kind of comes back to that, that continuous delivery, rapid iteration, momentum uh, type of deal. And I guess related to that, I mean, how do you, how do you handle releases or release schedules or like estimates or deadlines? How does that all work? We do make a list of release dates and version numbers and roughly what goes in each thing. We make this in, in months in advance. We are always adjusting it. So that's something that is painful to do, but seemingly necessary. I would like to, I would like us to be better about sticking to our release schedule, but we really revolve it around product deployments, customer deployments, and also busy times. Mm. So we, we like to get a release done right before it gets really hectic so that we can do proper QA and testing and then have a nice foundation to ride into the next release. But yeah, we, we would do, we tend to do, let's say builds weekly. We do releases by, uh, bi monthly or monthly. Mm -hmm. And the release usually has a dozen or so features or capabilities in it and as many bug fixes as we can fit. And then we will sometimes do emergency releases if we have some networking incompatibility or something. We we have a couple different pieces here. So we have not just the client application, but also the server application, which can be deployed on-prem. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's an adventure where the customer has to upgrade, update one without updating the other or get mm -hmm. the two in sync. And so that's always an adventure. So it's it's we're juggling a bunch of different releases um, of all these modules and components and sometimes a, a release just of a content change that isn't even a full application change. So that is definitely, I'd say, one of the areas of weakness hmm. is that we, it is, um, it is difficult to modularize this type of application right now. So the releases tend to be very large rather than being, let's say, a small incremental module. We do big releases. I'd rather we do more frequent small releases. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, because it, it's sort of like you are, you're going back to older software, um, I guess, uh, uh, deliverability. Like the the way that I guess a lot of the SaaS that that 
you know, is on the web now, not even in like the app store. I mean, that could be just continuous, right? Because because as soon as you push the change, it's it's there and everywhere. But with with VR and especially your your on-prem deployments, I mean, that's very much like you are shipping a physical CD or something to a customer. And so th- those were those were much more more expensive. Right. Uh, how how do you do the uh, how do you work with the developers in terms of those deadlines and those schedules? I mean, do you have them give you estimates or do you give them deadlines? How does that work? We do set deadlines and we we get estimates and we add a little bit of a padding in there to to remove the going crazy factor. So we also people recognize that it's while we are achieving to be in a marathon, we are constantly doing occasional sprints. So I think everybody has an awareness and a flexibility that when we have a bunch of stuff come in that maybe we're looking a little shaky for a deadline, people will put in the extra effort to get over the the finish line and get that packaged to send it off. And when they are also participating in the demos sometimes or the deployments, we have to factor in transit time and context switching time of a developer. Like Mm -hmm. for example, if we have a deadline on Friday and then a deployment on Monday, we have to factor in that the weekend may be out of commission for various reasons. Um, But we, it's not like we can, you know, well, we'll just uh, crunch through on a Saturday or something and knock it out. Well, the person's in transit on Saturday Mm -hmm. and then Sunday they're getting adjusted to the time zone and they, have to have a life as well. So it's it's always an adventure because the estimates don't always factor in the the time that it takes to switch between tasks or the time that it takes to get spun up on something. So we we generally have to add a little bit of a padding. Mm-hmm. So maybe a 20% or a 15%, something like that, a couple hours here and there. Makes a lot of sense. I think you're you're also touching on something else uh, that that I'm curious about. Like, how do you how do you how do you think about culture and expectations and work life balance? Like, you're already talking about travel on the weekends and and things like that. Like, what what's the type of thing that that you expect um, from your people? How is that how is that communicated? What are they looking for? This is probably going to be a more controversial answer, but I, for me, the work-life balance can be a, a good thing and a bad thing in how people perceive it. So from my perspective, I think that when you have a small company, a startup, and you have more business coming in than you can handle, and you have opportunities, you work hard, extra hard to achieve those those accomplishments and, and really to to grab those opportunities because they don't come along every day. So I think that this is where somebody who's a maybe a seasoned founder will understand when you have, let's say, five potential customers coming in in a given week and you're going to have to work heavy, heavy hours and it's going to be a 60, 70, maybe even more hour week from everybody to get it done, that if the team is unwilling to do that, the team is probably not suited for a startup. Mm-hmm. So there can also be on the flip side periods of, hey, we just made a huge accomplishment. Let's take it easy for a minute. We just had a big win. Mm-hmm. So let's let's enjoy it. 
But I think that finding people who are motivated by the end goal of building value is more important than people who are, let's say, motivated by uh, working 39.9 hours in a given week, because I think that that number of hours is somewhat arbitrary. It really comes down to output. So if somebody, some people are really, really productive in 40 hours and less and are more productive than people in 60 hours. So the hours isn't really the metric. It's the output that's the metric. But of course, sometimes more input means more output. So I think that having this concept of it's going to be a a 40 hour work week in a startup is probably delusional. Um, that's, that's maybe what you see in a read in a book or see in a movie, but if you want to win, the best way to win is to outwork your opponent. Mm -hmm. And so if they're going and signing off at 501 and then you sign off at 501, that's a fair fight. You don't win in a fair fight. So (laughs) startup world, don't have a fair fight, outwork them. Don't burn out. That's the cautionary tale. Don't work so hard that you three months later say, Oh, I just can't do it anymore. I need a month off. Right. Well, now you're basically have just evened out to 40 hours. You haven't really accomplished anything different except burn yourself out. So I think it's a balance of knowing where is that limit of burnout and then yielding right before that, recharging and then hitting it again pretty hard. But knowing that an opportunity doesn't come along every day, it really just comes down to, are you in this for the opportunity? Or are you in this for the lifestyle? What's your priority? And that's going to determine what your position is, quite frankly, at the company. So are, are those different people and can you identify them? Or is this something that you you outwardly communicate and let people know that, that look, this is a startup. This is not like a big corporation. This is not, you know, like a guaranteed, like, as you say, 39.9 hour a week. Like we went, if we do have the opportunity for something we are going to redline and you know when when we when things are are fine and calm because we're a startup and you know we don't have shareholders or whatever like you can take it easy like is that something that you communicate up front is that something that you really try and identify in the person how do you how do you make sure that people are aligned with that culture it's both of those it's a lot of asking about cultures they've been through in the past and what they liked and didn't like about it. It's a lot of, of asking about how they think about opportunity. So there's, it's part of the interview process is just trying to understand how do they perceive a goal and are they motivated to achieve that goal or are they motivated to balance the time that they work towards it? And is it about the, the accomplishment or is it about the effort is it about input or is it about output for somebody? Somebody who's output oriented definitely speaks and behaves differently than somebody who is input oriented. And so that's a, I don't, I don't know, some type of questioning that we do to try to fill out that culture. We also very clearly advertise our culture. Mm. And as I'm saying it right now, if somebody's <laughs> listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I wonder if I should work for this company. You can have a pretty good idea if you want to work for this company based on how you think it sounds. And it's uh, it's not it's intense. Yes, but it's very rewarding on a number of levels. But it's it's something we definitely are very, very clear about throughout the process. And we generally find people 
that are compatible with that. Usually most people do a little bit of research mm-hmm. before they reach out to a company or apply to a company. And it seems like everybody that we talk to for the most part is aware of what it's like mm-hmm. here. Uh, we're not, a, it's not a secret. So if that's what you're looking for, if you, we also, I should, small tangent, mm-hmm. we get a lot of people who are new in their career as well. Mm-hmm. And they are looking to really get up to speed and that's good and bad for us. It's We always encourage people who are very ambitious and want to get ahead and want to have a, a springboard for that. We can definitely incubate talent in a manner of speaking, and we will benefit from it, and they will benefit from it. And so we are willing to accept people from a variety of backgrounds, and we're not very critical on even things like an educational background. We're really just looking for mentality drive and work ethic and experience to some degree. So we think that people who have the goal to grow are the people that will grow and we hope they'll grow with us, but we understand and we've had people come in and you know add a lot of value for a year, two years, and then move on to bigger things, which we totally are fine with. Um, obviously, if they stick around, they get the upside of having a company that has no venture capital funding and being self-directed uh, and self-driven. There's a lot of upside in that. But um, but we sort of are compatible with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different mentalities. And as long as we advertise that, I think, on the outside, then it filters itself on the inside. Yeah, Jen, I think that is awesome. And uh, hey, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Badvr.com. And just you can Google us or search engine of choice. It's very easy to get a hold of us, all the social media platforms. And uh, yeah, just reach out anytime and come check us out at different conferences. And uh, we're always happy to have a very frank conversation about any topic. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for the Superstruck Show.